Hi friends, welcome back to Modern Wisdom. My guest today, Roderick Yap, ex-Marines officer, now turned business leader, applying what he learned during his time in the armed forces to the world of business. Uh, And we don't really talk at all about business. We talk a lot about some of his fascinating experiences during his time in Afghanistan. He chased Somali pirates and recaptured a vessel from them at one point. So, yeah, uh, I'm not going to be fucking with Roderick anytime soon. Uh, In other news, Johnny Newsif coming around, going to film some more episodes over the next few weeks. Me and Video Guy Dean got a couple of dates booked in to film some short-form YouTube stuff as well, and the new Bro Trip episode 2 coming out on the Modern Wisdom YouTube channel very soon. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by pop demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout this episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, please welcome 
the wise and wonderful Roderick Yap. Roderick, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Chris. Very happy to be here. Looking forward to speaking to you. So, give us a bit of background. What What's your heritage? Where do you come from and what did you do? So, um, my first career was as an officer in the Royal Marines. Um, I left university in 2003, 2004, struggling to remember now. Um, really with an aspiration to do sort of something completely different. Um, and I remember there are a number of reasons that sort of, you know, caused me to go down that route. But fundamentally, it really was sort of seeking a challenge and trying to do something that was different. Um, and I found in life that, you know, if you if you're faced with a series of sort of paths, choose the one that's the most difficult, because then you're going to learn the most about yourself. Um, and ultimately, that's that's what I chose to do. So I joined up in 2005. I served for seven years. Um, I was lucky enough to go to Afghanistan um, got civilians out of Libya in 2011 during the Arab Spring. And then towards the end of my time, specialised in counter piracy and did a couple of tours off the coast of uh, Somalia in the Indian Ocean. So I uh, had an absolutely fantastic time. Um, left when I turned 30 for a sort of number of reasons, primarily kind of domestic. Got married in my final year, didn't really want to be an absent parent. Um, and have since then um, been working in the corporate world before starting my own business. Why did you say fortunate enough to go to Afghanistan? Um, because I think uh, whilst I did choose to join the Royal Marines, I joined at a time when the operational tempo was really, really significant. You know, we were going, we were doing sort of back-to-back tours of a really demanding environment. And I think that I consider myself lucky to have been out to those places, been tested in that environment because I think I'd have found it really frustrating if I'd gone through training and then frankly done a sort of series of exercises or prepared for a war that wasn't going to happen. You know, within 12 months of passing out of training, I was being shot at and being tested in a really hostile dividing environment. So I consider myself lucky to have been there, done that, but also survived it and come out the other side. Yeah, I get that. There's not many people I know that would have said lucky for being selected to be shot at in Afghanistan. (laughs) It's, it's a sort of slightly strange way of looking at it. But I mean, there are a number of people that, you know, that I sort of work with, even now, sort of former Royal Marines officers, you know, who joined the, the Corps in the sort of 90s and, and didn't and weren't lucky enough to kind of experience that. You know, they were maybe going to Ireland, uh, which wasn't as sort of kinetic and as aggressive as sort of Afghanistan and Iraq. So they were just just because of the political situation, they didn't get the chance to to go and experience it. And, and I was lucky like that. So talk me through what it's like coming out of university, because I had a bunch of friends as well who were in OTC when they were at uni, um, mm-hmm. officer training corps, and they had the potential, oh, maybe I'll go Sandhurst, maybe I'll do whatever. What's it like being a student and, you know, going out on the lash a few nights a week, like most of the people that all of us know if we went to uni with them and, oh, hi, mate, see what rugby on Saturday, stuff like that. And then, you know, within how long is it before you're on tour? Two years? Um, yeah, about that. Um, although for some it was much shorter um, because of the way the rotations worked. Uh, guys joined up as civilians in August 2005. 
And by Christmas 2006, they were on the front line leading 30 guys. Shit the bed. And I was like, like, you know, you look at every other grad scheme, right? You look at what <laughs> PwC, Deloitte, all these other companies <laughs> offer you. You tell me one, right, that gives you 15 months of leadership training uh, in some fairly demanding circumstances. And your first job is line managing 30 people in combat. I was like, there's, there's no one that offers any level of development anywhere near that. That's, that's an interesting analogy, a way, a way to draw it across. Yeah, you would, I mean, I had, again, one of my, the housemate that actually was in the OTC, JT, mm-hmm. um, he went straight out of uni at 21 and did the uh, Aldi graduate scheme. Okay. Uh, and that's like widely regarded as, you know, sort of one of the toughest ones that you can do. But he wasn't yeah. getting shot at 15 months later. <laughs> True. It's, um, but if you think of it like that, you know, if you think of, you know, when you're in your 20s, you've got an opportunity to take risk, you know, because frankly, you haven't been playing the game long enough for it really to matter. So, you know, even if you join the army, you join the Marines, you decide it's not for you. You can always join a graduate scheme 12 months later. You know, you're not going to be significantly behind anyone over the course of a 40, 50 year career or whatever that is. So, yeah, I, I, I was I loved it. You know, I look back on it being proud to have served. Um, it made me the person I am today. It informed a huge amount of the way in, I think and sort of see the world. There's strengths, and I think sometimes limitations to that. Um, but I wouldn't change a single thing about it. Do you think some form of conscription or some form of more encouraged sign-up would be useful for a lot of people, a lot of young people now? So I wouldn't – I'm not a believer in uh, any form of sort of conscription. I, I think it's really expensive. And also, you end up with an enormous number of people in the military that frankly don't want to be there. But I am in favour of some form of national service. So, you know, you, you come out of university or just before you go to university, there are enough problems in the UK that you could take a group of people and say, right, you can either join the military or you can work in this charitable area, you know, push people out of their comfort zone, get them dealing with people that come from a completely different background, completely different part of the UK. You know, when you talk to people, and I've spoken to a few people from Israel, they, they really talk about their national service. And in that instance, that is military. But they talk about it with a real sort of sense of pride, and they hugely value the skills and the change in perspective that they get from it. Mm. Um, so it doesn't have to be military, but I do think that some form of sort of, you know, voluntary or military, or you, you, you would get to choose an avenue to go down. Mm. I think that would be genuinely a good thing. The people that I know that are in, um, that are nurses, that are doctors, that are working in healthcare, that are working in the uh, law enforcement in, across yeah. the world, all of, these, all of these people have a perspective that I think, unfortunately, those of us who have only ever worked in an office or you know run our own business or being an entrepreneur like i think that i have a good perspective on the world because i've traveled to different places to go and like mm. have a party holiday i yeah. don't I, I haven't met the locals of you know afghanistan i haven't really i've been to uh i've stepped foot in that direction once and it was dubai like that's mm. not that's not a representative example of what that area of the world's like and i think you know that any 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 perspective is useful. The more extreme you can go to, the more sort of re- you realise kind of how lucky that you are. Um, when I so, so when I was in Afghanistan in 2007, we would basically have this really sort of 
strange uh, routine whereby if we got into a firefight and some civilians got injured, we would allow them to come into the base, we'd patch them up and we'd give them US dollars. Um, and so it's sort of, sort of a really kind of blunt compensation tool. Um, and this was kind of when I really early on learned that lesson of be very careful what you measure and the way in which you incentivize people. Because after a while, we started to get the same girl coming in over and over again. And the boss sort of sat down and said, you know, you guys haven't been in a firefight. There's been no contact in the area in the last sort of few days. I'm right in thinking that. I was like, yeah, 100%, nothing, no fights in the Taliban. So, okay. So why is this girl coming in with fresh gunshot wounds? On closer inspection, we realized that they're not 556 five, rounds, they're 762. So it's not our, it's unlikely to be our weapon systems that are causing these. And what we found out was that this girl's family were effectively shooting her, bringing her in and using her as a cash cow to make money. And then when we realized the game was up and we weren't doing this anymore, they shot her with an RPG and she came in with no lower jaw. And I remember thinking, like, a couple of things. Fucking A, it's an accident of history to be born in the UK and how lucky I am. And B, I don't fucking understand this place. I cannot understand, I cannot relate my values from where I come from. And now as a father of a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son, I cannot get my head around how someone can make that decision. Um, and I, I, I think the most the, the, the way I kind of rested with it or sort of where I got to was that it's unhelpful to think of some of these places in terms of geography. And some people will probably kick back on some of these things that I say, but I think that this is, I, I think of things in, in terms of, is it useful or, 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 or not so much? And I think of Afghanistan, frankly, as a country much like the Middle Ages. Think of Britain, you know, in a sort of feudal system, and you're probably not too far wrong. And ultimately, that helps you understand it a little bit more. That's how they behave. That's, that's just the way it is. It's just that level of development. It's more like traveling back in time than it is like traveling to a different part of the world. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> what Again, a story, I- man. Wow. I, I, you're right. I have no values that I can extrapolate out. I have no working model of human nature, human behavior that I can expand to make that story make sense. Exactly. And then so, right. So now if that's the context that you're faced with now effectively deliver a change program, fast track 800 years worth of development inside four to six years. That's the scale of the task. And and you just realize that, you know, you go there for six months and and you just can't really get your head around it because you don't really have any of the mental models, any of the concepts to understand how they think. It is so far removed, you might as well go to the moon um, and try and have some, some sort of impact there. It's just a different planet. Um, have you reflected on why it is so different? Is it just emergent? Is it because of a lack of contact with the outside world? This is me speaking as someone who really doesn't understand sort of where the culture of Afghanistan comes from. What's the reason for it being that backward? Um, 
I've, I haven't read it, but I think something, you know, like Prisoners of Geography probably shines a bit of a, a sort of view on that. Um, Afghan is a, Afghanistan's a very sort of mountainous and a very kind of isolated place. Um, it doesn't, it, I don't think it's got the same sort of, you know, inward outward migration that say, you know, you know, Europe has, I don't think it's had the same cosmopolitan. Yeah. I don't think it's had the same access to even things as simple as someone was saying to me, you know, animals that you're able to domesticate, you know, we take that for granted in Europe, but that has had a significant impact on, uh, on how we've been able to fight, um, effectively, you know, move, you know, uh, you take something like a horse, right? Um, we take horses for granted in Europe and, and sort of this part of the world. They, they're sort of fairly, they're able to kind of survive here. But, you know, you take something like a zebra and a zebra can't be tamed. So, you know, how that has an impact, I kind of don't know. Um, but I suspect it's kind of those kind of things, a kind of cumulative impact of a lot of things, one of them being climate, you know, access to a variety of sort of different cultures that can cross-pollinate the ability to grow different crops to be, you know, anywhere near, say, something like the the Enlightenment taking place. That mm-hmm. probably never really got there until relatively recent. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, all of these kind of things. It's interesting to talk about the cosmopolitan sort of thing. I, I don't see any students saying, oh, I'm going to go and do my gap year in, <laughs> like, Baghdad. Or, no, you know, like they're not sending themselves over there. So it is, and then bizarrely, there's two sides to it, right? There's part of me that wants to look at that story and say, "What fucking savages!" Like, how dare yeah. you do that to someone? And then on the flip side of that, I think, well, would you have said the same thing about someone in the 1400s? In the you know, in the tw- in 1200 AD? Would you have said the same if someone was coming and essentially freeing these peasants from this life that they had and gifting them wealth in yeah. uh, that they would never ever be able to access themselves? Like, oh, well, maybe it's a little bit more. I, again, I, I just have no, I have no way to frame that. I mean, I think it's it's um, it's really so. If, if we if we stick with that kind of if we view it as a sort of different time zone, you know, eight hundred years prior or something something akin to that kind of era. Um, you you sort of move past i guess you kind of it, it becomes easier to sort of move past judgment you know if you take your ancestors i should imagine 800 years ago your ancestors probably did some really unpleasant things um but they did what they had to do to survive they did what they were taught to do they did i guess what they thought was appropriate given the context that they were faced with and i think that it's really easy to judge people with a historical perspective you often get this in the states at the moment you know, where the sort of founding fathers maybe had some different views on slavery, um, you know, and people are like, oh, this is really bad. We George must, Washington you know, got, owned slaves. and like, Exactly. Yeah, we, you know, we've, got to, we've got to erase them from history. And I'm like, well, hang on a sec. If, if the subsequent generations judged the past and the behavior of the people that came before them, it's a really easy question to sort of judge them and go, well, you know, that was disgraceful. My challenge is to what what are your grandchildren, what are your great grandchildren going to judge you for? You know, hundred years time when you're, you know, if you live to that age, you you sat there with your grandchild and they turn around and go, I can't believe that you used to do that. Mm. What are they going to be talking about? And well, I have no idea, really. I think but it's a, a more interesting question. I think a very good suggestion for what that might be is factory farming. 
there's a lot of very clever people that I know who think that in a couple of hundred years or more, let's say that we're able to create a cost-effective grown Petri dish meat, which mm-hmm. allows people to f- hit that particular caloric requirement, but without having to create animals literally to be slaughtered. I think that that world would look back on us and think, hang on, you did, you, you threw away 50% of every chicken, all of the chicken breeds that you made literally just into a meat grinder. I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan, um, but mm. I spend time around some ones that are terrifyingly clever and I'm kind of drinking the Kool-Aid at least a little bit from them. But yeah, like you, you did what you just, they were born and then taken away from their mum so that their mum would give milk so that you could drink the milk as opposed to, you know, that, that to me, I think is one of those. And you're right. The beauty of uh, hindsight is that it's 2020 vision and you have mm. this amazing perspective where you're able to see, oh, well, this is framed within the values of now. And it's like, yes, but it wasn't now. It was then. Now yeah. is now. And in the future, it won't be now either. Yeah. And that's the thing. And, and I get, that's one of the sort of, I guess my concerns about the modern world is that it's so easy to take someone out of context. It's so easy to make a sort of snap judgment on someone that maybe says something and is kind of thinking out loud. Um, and people are so quick to jump all over that stuff. And it can be really, really damaging to people's careers and reputations. Um, and I think it shuts down debate, which I don't think is helpful. Not at all. Um, Not at all. Especially with the frictionless communication, which we've got, you know, mm. like if, if Kevin Hart can get borderline cancelled, the hardest working, one of the best, the best paid uh, comedian on the planet, if he can get yeah. borderline cancelled for a tweet that was a decade ago, like yeah. none of us are safe. That's none of us are safe. Which he's apologised for countlessly. Which you like, no, what the, the, what do you think the, the store manager at Asda or, you know, the, the um, guy in the military, you know, yeah. what, what do you think the, the Marines officer now, oh, like he's had Facebook since he was 10 or 12 or whenever you're allowed to get it or something like that. Fuck me. Like it's so, I'm just, I'm glad that I didn't have social media until I was at least borderline an adult because I would have mm. been, I'd have been making mistakes all over the place. And you're right. Like, the reason for communication is that you are allowed to play with ideas. If that's what you like to do, and I'm one of the mm-hmm. people that does like to do that, you're supposed to be able to play with ideas. What are the ba- I'm not supposed to have to make sure that I'm saying it in a, a nerfed environment where it won't get leaked out beyond the boundaries of people who actually know what I'm talking about. I know that I'm not a bigot, racist, homophobe, transphobe, xenophobe, da 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 You know yeah. what I mean? Like list off whatever it is that someone's going to accuse you of doing because you wanted to work, try and say something that was not even half formed in your mind yeah. that can then get taken out of context. And obviously the people that are, that are in these positions of public renown, there's even, the stakes are even higher for them. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, I think people, people assume that, just because you say something, it's a kind of clearly articulated, you know, carefully thought Window into your soul. Thought. And it's just not. I mean, I haven't got a script in front of me. Yep. Neither of you. Yep. We're having a conversation. So I don't really know what's going to come out next. Um, <laughs> and there's some risk that comes with that. <laughs> a little bit. Um, but that's part of it, right? That's part of it. Mm. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah you, you're very right. So I want to I find out about the fact that you were a pirate hunter. Tell us about, <laughs> tell us about being a pirate hunter. So 
Um, piracy was really interesting, actually. Um, I did my first tour off the coast of Somalia in late 2010, and I was the intelligent office, intelligence officer. Um, so what my job really involved there was effectively looking at aerial photographs of camps um, and trying to get my head inside the sort of mind of a pirate. Um, piracy is interesting because it's not the same as it's not the same as Islamic fundamentalism. Fundamentally, this is a business model for them. Okay. And the moment okay. they feel that they cannot, the 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 risk um, outweighs the reward, they'll sort of pull back um, and they won't do it anymore. Um, so I went off to so I went off the coast of Somalia late 2010 and then again late 2011. And the reason it was sort of September to December was because as the monsoon changes, as it moves from southeast to northwest or, or the other way around, you get a period of sort of very calm water in the Indian Ocean. And when the water's calm, small boats can get a reasonable speed up and they can um, effectively hunt down merchant shipping. When the sea state's really choppy, uh, it's like driving fast on a very bumpy road. Um, you trash the boats, you can't get up to the sort of full speed, whereas the big stuff, because it frankly doesn't really have any impact on that, they can just charge straight through it and basically outrun the small boats. Um, so again, a couple of tours off the coast there, um, arresting uh, and interdicting pirates who claimed that they were fishermen, despite the fact that we'd sort of have a helicopter over the side, over the top as they were chucking weapons and ladders over the side and there was sort of a complete absence of fishing gear. Um, again, really a really interesting tour that both of them were that sort of really changed my perspective. Um, one of my guys, we arrested some pirates and one of my guys said, look, we've got a guy here who's been shot. And I was like, well, patch him up, <laughs> you know, he's like, no, 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 this happened obviously quite a while ago. Um, and basically you can sort of see my forearm there. What this guy had was, I'd say probably about a 10, 10 degree angle in his forearm. And one forearm was about that much longer than the other. Uh, and I looked at this and I looked at his sort of wrist and he'd clearly, he, you know, he'd been shot in the wrist. He'd had a really catastrophic injury and it had never been splinted correctly. Uh, it had just been sort of wrapped up. He'd clearly had some antibiotics pumped into him and he'd survived it. Um, and I remember saying to my Marines, uh, you know, like, guys, you, you can, you bitch and moan when there isn't, you know, a second dessert on the ship. Hmm. You know, this guy has been shot through the wrist. He's clearly survived it. And now he's got this sort of permanent injury. And again, you sort of realize that huge amounts of the world are totally ungoverned. And the people with the biggest stick or the most weapons, they're the ones that rule the roost. And while we might bitch and moan about the state of this country, actually, go and wander around Somalia you know, go to sort of some Far East parts of, you know, Ethiopia or, you know, other parts of the world that are less developed, see how they live and then ask yourself how well you've got it. Because I think most of the time you find actually, again, coming back to this sort of accident of history thing, you know, if your family's lives are on the line, your values change very, very quickly around what you are willing to do and what you're not willing to do. Um, and again, yeah, another, another great experience, uh, yeah, off the coast of Somalia. Was lucky enough to recapture a pirated vessel as well, which was, um, yeah, which was a good experience. Wow, I want to hear about that in a second. But it, sure. <laughs> one of the one of the things that's coming to mind is I wonder what would happen if nuclear war broke out tomorrow, or there was 
some sort of catastrophe that meant it was pretty much every family for themselves. And mm. I wonder how many of the people who have civility and, and tolerance and all the rest of it as their front line of personality and how they identify. I wonder how long that would stay if it was dog eat dog. It'd be very interesting to find out. I mean, the number of people that have said to me, you know, I'd, I would never be able to kill someone. And you're just like, well, I'll give you a situation. You come home, someone's got a knife to one of your children's, you know, necks. You have an opportunity to take a shot at very short range. Would you do it? Yeah. I'm like, right. So the context is, the context has changed your view on that. Of course you would. You know, given the right situation, people are capable of some, of some fairly unpleasant and, and violent things. Um, and I think, you know, if you, you probably sort of, you know, if you looked into the sort of studies around evil, the sort of various experiments that have been done, context and the way the environment shapes our behavior is hugely powerful. Um, I can't remember the name of that experiment where it was done in the US where the people were sort of shocking each other or shocking a, an actor. You know, there was, I think, the, the prison experiment, the Stanford prison experiment that got out of control. All these are normal people within a relatively short space of time, capable of doing some really unpleasant things to others. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd be very careful when people say that they're unable to do those kind of things. I think, I think given the context and, and the situation they're presented with, I think mm -hmm. we're all capable of violence if we have to be. The thing as well that you keep alluding to is that the only reason that you or me or anyone that's listening isn't that girl with her jaw hanging off or her mother or father is purely by roll of the dice. Your consciousness could have been that one, could have been a different one, could have been whatever one. And the fact that you happen to be born in one of the best countries in the world in the best time in history with yeah. the most wellness and the longest lifespan and the best economic opportunities and continue to roll it out from there. You know, and I, I do the same. I catch myself all the time complaining about, oh, I can't believe that my dopamine receptors are being manipulated by Facebook and then go, what are you talking about? You've got this Oracle in your pocket, which has access to all of human history's wisdom. Like you, 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 one thing, one counter argument to myself there, and I brought this up on a previous podcast was I, I agree that we need to have perspective when we make judgments about the world that we live in. Right, We need mm -hmm. to think like it could be so much worse. You could be being attacked by Somali pirates. You could have half of your jaw being blown off for yeah. you know a couple of hundred dollars or whatever it might be. But on the flip side, the only alternative to that is, well, I'm just going to go through saying that this is good enough. As our standard of living increases and as the resolution and the fidelity with which we look at the state of society and technology and how we are all combining ourselves together, as that improves, we have to look at it with an increasingly sharp eyeglass. Because otherwise, if I, it's no point looking at today by the standards of 50 years ago, because it's not useful. It has mm. to be, okay, so where are the failings that we have right now? Based on the, the qualities and the, the opportunities and the technologies and everything else, the understandings that we have, how can we improve this right now? Not by the standards of Afghanistan, not by the standards of the Somali pirates, but where you are, when you are. Mm. No, I completely agree with that. Um, but I, th I think you're right with your starting point, which has to be a sense of, do you know what? It, it's pretty good. 
it's all pretty good right now. That doesn't mean we don't have issues. It doesn't mean we don't have problems. But by and large, and you just have to look at the data. You know, any any data, you know, if you look at sort of infant mortality, um, literacy, violence against women and girls, all of that is getting a hell of a lot better. Um, so ripping apart the system and throwing out the baby with the bathwater, I, I don't agree. I think actually it is about sort of incremental, steady change. Mm. You know, we have a welfare state in this, a welfare system in this country. That's a good thing. Um, I don't think that many people take advantage of it. Um, others might disagree with me, but by and large, I think it is a, it's a great thing that we have that and that we're able to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that hasn't previously existed. Yeah. That's a relatively recent invention. Wasn't it that I think the UN had the, the, a target of halving world poverty within, I think it was 40 years and they did yeah. it within like 25 or yeah. something. And the change in, in uh, poverty across the world, people that were living below that particular, which I think is actually only about four thousand. I think it's about four thousand dollars a year. Is yeah, is it around about the the uh, barrier for that? And they hit it within like, essentially half the time, or like two thirds of the time. Yeah, I mean it's a, it is it is it, it's astonishing actually, kind of how good things are. You so, know, the murder rate, for example, another one massively down on where it used to be. How do you? What I was trying to do with my second analogy there was how do we hold two two things in mind at the same time? The first one being we are living in the best time that there ever has been in one of the best countries that there is to live in mm-hmm. whilst we can be better. How do we hold those two things in our mind at the same time? I mean, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can be grateful for what you've got but harness that thirst and that ambition to improve the status quo i mean i'm really thankful for everything i've got you know two healthy children you know a a wife that loves me um and a business that is that frankly like is work that i love doing and i'm really enjoy it like i'm you know i'm i'm a nine on the scale of you know gratitude really i've got nothing nothing that i'm not uh you know largely happy about but that doesn't mean that i feel i've achieved everything i want to um i still have a sort of really strong drive and a desire to i guess improve the situation for other people um or improve the status quo um i i get uncomfortable I get uncomfortable when people give me really nicely, you know, refined, you know, answers to the way things are, because uh, I just don't think the world works like that. I think everything is kind of a work in progress. Um, and I, I'm kind of happy with that. Um, mm. I think you can hold those two things. I think you can, I think you can love, for example, I think you can love your children for the person that they are. But I think you can have high expectations of them and you can hold them to account. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, so I don't see them as mutually exclusive. I think that they are. Um, I, I think that you can hold those two two things in your mind. It comes back to nuance as well, though, doesn't it? What we were talking about before. 100%. You've got to be able to have that subtlety in your conversation and to be allowed to play with ideas because it's, you know, we're, we're trying to work something out here. You know your yeah. kids better than anyone else on the planet. And even you are still thinking, okay, so how can I even just express 
briefly what I mean when I say that I like my my children, I love them for who they are, but I want them to be better. You know, even if that's all that you're grappling with is to try and linguistically make it make sense, how do you then deploy? You know, it's difficult. It's hard. Massively. These things are yeah. challenging. And I think it's a there's a lot of laziness that comes from people who want to be able to just put a single, a tweet length, yes. like conclusion to whatever it is, or, you know, back from that even more and just a label, like a single word. Yeah. That's what the trouble, that's one of the problems is that I think, you know, everyone wants the executive summary. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't want to know the working out. I don't know how you got to the answer. I want the executive summary. I want the Twitter answer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but there's, there's no depth. There's no understanding there. Um, there's no ability to adjust a way of looking at things depending on that context. The world is a really, really complicated place. Um, and I think just reminding ourselves that, the, that we're all just grappling with trying to understand it a little bit better, trying to understand ourselves and other people. Um, I, I, yeah, I think being comfortable with that, being, being comfortable with uncertainty is a kind of key skill in the modern world. Taking that across to the armed forces and the way that that works, obviously the, the whole reason that you have a um, line of command within the armed forces and operating procedures is to try and simplify that decision-making process, is to try yeah. and have some guidelines for how you bring order to chaos, right? Mm-hmm. How there, is there a mindset change that happens when people join? You know, let's say that someone comes in and someone has this particular worldview, which is very, very complex, and then they need to kind of, they're just, right, okay, forget all of the gesticulating, forget the, is it right, is it wrong? It just needs to be, you follow the orders. Is Do you watch people change sort of when they join and they potentially go from one type of person to another? Um, I think there are certain... So the, the military is far less command and control than people think it is. Okay. So a lot of the time you get this view that it's all about, you know, you are told what to do. Um, yes, sir. Exactly. Yes, sir. No, sir. All of that kind of thing. The kind of, you know, uh, full metal jacket drill sergeant <laughs> erasing your personality. Yeah. And whilst there is an element of that that's required, um, fundamentally, all of those lessons in the early days are really can you follow simple instructions and can you meet our standards now if you look at any form of operational excellence the first step in operational excellence is to standardize the process that's all the military is doing so can you iron your shirt can you polish your boots can you pack your kit can you do things to a certain level right okay you can right the next step is to now move on to weapons can you keep your weapon system clean can you handle it responsibly? All of these kind of things, they're just building blocks in order to get you to understand how to use this equipment safely. But then you get to this stage where you're put into a position of responsibility or authority and things are chaotic and you need to make decisions. And what the military are very good at is, is giving people an end state. So if you were working for me, for example, Chris, I'd say, look, Chris, this is, this is what I want you to achieve. This is the end state that I set you. This is the future that I want you to get to. How you achieve that, totally up to you. Come back to me if you need support or extra resource. The how is up to you. Now, because we leave the how up to you as an individual, that makes you unpredictable. 
And being unpredictable in combat is really, really important because the moment you become predictable, people can effectively ambush you because they know what you're going to do next. Um, and that's how it's done. It's all done around a, a sort of common language of intent. What is my commanding officer? What is his intent? What does he want to happen? And then how do I use the resources I've got in order to achieve that in my own way? But it's not prescriptive in any way. I'm left to kind of work it all out. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I've been thinking a lot recently about the um, the elements that we all need to help us perform a little bit better. And I think for so many people, it's direction and accountability. You need to know yeah. where you are going and yeah. you need to be accountable to someone if you don't go in that direction. 100%. And it's interesting that you have identified in the way that the military is pieced together, that that, that really is two of the key elements. A hundred percent. And I, the accountability thing, you know, when people say, what's the one thing you miss about the organization? It's like, it, it is a hundred percent the accountability people. I, I never felt that I had to give an order. I think if you have to rely on your rank in the military, you failed somewhere along the line to build trust, to build that relationship. Mm. Um, but like if I asked one of my corporals or my sergeants to do something, it was absolutely going to happen. I could set my watch by it because they would work through the night to make sure it did happen. They wouldn't clock off at five and go, I can't get that done. Mm. There was a, just a different sense of ownership. Um, they took responsibility and they delivered to that end state. And, you know, if it was something really simple, like, you know, I needed to book a hire car to go and have a look at a range, you know, someone would say to me, okay, so where is it you're going? Oh, I'm going over to this place in, you know, Castle Martin on the edge of Wales. Okay. So, um, what I'll do is I'll book the hire car and I'll get it to come to your house the night before so you can leave early. I'll make sure there's one of those. This is back in the day when there was a tag to go cross the bridge. I'll make sure there's one of those in there. Um, and I'll get you a slightly bigger one. So it's a more comfortable journey. Just like, like hundred percent, so much more accountable, mm. you know, by seeking an understanding of, right, well, what is it you're trying to achieve? you're trying to do something relatively simple there. Okay, so how can I best help you to achieve that effect? Is that partly due to the common purpose? Um, I think it's more to do with um, the common understanding of uh, you're like me, you're, you're one of us. You know, you wear uh, Royal Marines Commando, you know, on the side of your shirt, you wear the green beret, Um I'm here to help you be successful and vice versa. And I mean, it's unbelievable what can be achieved when, when people have that mindset, when they genuinely believe that their fundamental priority is to support the success of others. Um, it's very customer focused to use some corporate speak, if I can, very customer focused. Mm. Is, is part of that the shared experience of going through the preparation to get to where you are? The fact that you all have that commonality? I think so. Um, I think, Generally speaking, the people that don't look out for others, the people that don't um, adhere to the values, you know, of the Royal Marines, they they don't survive. They get they get found out, um, and fundamentally, the group makes it uncomfortable for them to sort of stick around and be there. Um, so you, you know, you can't be. You, you will find it certainly very difficult in training if you're one of those people that you know at the end of an exercise disappears off to clean your personal weapon rather than helping other guys get around some of the heavier machinery to clean that. Um, people will find you out. People will say something that comes back to that accountability point of view. People will say, 
you know, I know that you think you're, you're pretty awesome, but I see you, you're a selfish bloke. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to account for that. I'm going to say that to your face. Mm. Um, the pressure ultimately creates that environment where you just don't have time for people that don't pull their weight. The stakes are much higher as well. You know, it's not, it's not just that person, that same person who might be the guy that calls out the person who doesn't go and clean the big gun in 20 years later in corporate world might actually let it slide. Mm. It's like, oh, do you know what it is? It's not fucking life or death, but it, yeah. it, it actually is life or death. The, yeah. stake, the stakes are a lot higher. It's, it's a shame that we can't port that, those stakes across to the corporate world, isn't it? it it's, it's difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very hard because people have no context for what it's like to work in an environment where the team does become, the team comes before your needs. You know, that's a really difficult thing to get your head around, around putting the needs of the group above yourself. But once you're in that environment, it's the closest you'll get to blood relatives and family. You know, the word brotherhood is often used to describe the relationships, relationships between men in combat. It's 100% true. Um, so, so, yeah, I think, um, I think it's difficult to experience that and therefore it's difficult to recreate it. Right, let's get back to Somali. I, I want to <laughs> I I find out about the pirates. So first off, why why is Somalia a hotbed for it? Was there just like some guy that was there that that said, "Oh, this this seems like a good business opportunity. We're in the right location," or some fella just started selling boats and AK forty sevens? So no, I think it's uh, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. One, huge numbers of ships go from uh, the southern coast of India up through. Um, past Yemen, past Somalia, and up through the Suez Canal. I don't know what the statistics are, but some enormous percentage of trade goes through that that route. So there's a lot of ships going that way. Secondly, Somalia, again, it's unhelpful to think of it as a country. It's largely ungoverned space. Yes, it is a country on a map, but outside of Mogadishu, the Somali government doesn't have a huge amount of control um, and you've got these sort of various autonomous regions. So around Mogadishu is largely sort of quite chaotic, Al-Shabaab, um, ISIS, Islamic fundamentalists. North of that, you've got Puntland, which is slightly more um, slightly more governed, but I certainly wouldn't be looking to go there on holiday. But then, you know, in Somaliland to the very north, I mean, you could fly there from London, um, and you could, if you wanted to, go on holiday there, and you'd probably be quite safe. So it's that kind of ungoverned space, um, access to, to weapons, um, and, and fundamentally, yeah, uh, uh, you know, an, it's an opportunity. It is an opportunity that people have decided, yeah, we're going to go after this. The fact uh, that you said it was a, it's a business, these people see it as a commercial enterprise, was mm. there's really sort of – I don't know why – I don't know why I thought that it would be because of something else, some sort of distaste for the the ships that were going by or something like that. It's just a, a opportunity to make profit. It's a business model, and I think you know the, the you know what if you again come back to the sort of ratios and the numbers, you know, ten thousand dollars to them is more than they can expect to earn in their entire lifetimes. So yeah, again, I haven't done the numbers, but call it a couple of million quid. What would what would some of the criminals in our country 
do or what would some people do for a couple of million pounds probably again it kind of changes the sort of risk reward <laughs> criteria for people um for them you know it, again it's life and death it is literally it can be as simple as that you know there is there is almost no other way to provide for their families so they choose to go and do this which again is is why i i won't judge them because if i was born on that side of the world would i be comfortable to pick up a rifle and go and provide for my family well i did it here so probably mm. do you think that are there some of the pirates that you encountered that did it with glee? I don't. I don't think so. Certainly not. With us, they were fairly contrite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they've been caught. But they've been caught. <laughs> um, even when we'd fly the helicopter past, they had a sort of understanding of our rules of engagement. You know, they would hold up, you know, rocket-propelled grenade launchers in a very kind of, I've got this. So, fuck off. Otherwise, this is going to be Black Hawk Town. Because, you know, if they turn it and face it at us, that's a threat to life. We can engage them mm. and we can shoot them with snipers. Mm-hmm. They were switched on to that kind of thing. So they knew our rules of engagement. That's sophisticated they knew what we could do. as well. Yeah. I mean, a lot, like, you know, primitive, yes, but mm. capable, definitely. What's their, um, what's their ML then? Talk me through how, how they go about trying to take down a, a ship. So before I do that, I'm just going to, I'm getting a couple of notices saying that my uh, Phone's phone battery is right, died. It's, it's so, on a pre-record anyway. So, right, okay, 45, so all I'm... 20, 45, 15. Okay, hopefully I can set this up. So that it goes to that charger. Um, I'm not sure if that's charging or not. Are you trying to use a, an induction charger like on its yeah. side? Yeah. It might work. Um, give me two seconds. Let it's me just right. fiddle it's about it. Well. That's fine. Yeah. We've got time. 45, Sorry. It's all right, mate. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. Okay, we've got it. Oh. We have. Got it. The light is coming on, which means it should be charging. Let's just get that right. And I will not move anything. Otherwise, this will come down. The whole house of cards will the come down, and then the, then the battery's going to go. Okay, so okay. MO, MO of uh, thing. So what they'll do is um, you'll have maybe two, probably two small skiffs. Now, a skiff is... 20 to 30 feet long speedboat with a pretty heavy motor on the back of it, as in something with probably 50 plus horsepower, something that can get up to sort of 30 knots relatively quickly. Um, that's one of the ways in which you can identify them because, of course, why would a fisherman require an expensive high-end engine? Um, they don't. So um, the way they'll do it is that they will, they will shadow the vessel, one on the port side, one on the starboard side, um, and what they're looking to do is, is trying to get the vessel um, to turn one way or the other. Because if the vessel's going into the prevailing weather, if it turns one way, it kind of creates a um, it creates almost a calm area to one side. And what they'll do is they'll come up alongside. If there are no if there's no barbed wire, I mean it's literally a question of putting a ladder up 
uh, and climbing on board. Um, like the so Battle of they, Hastings or like some Lord of the Rings thing, like just yeah, throwing not, it. Yeah, not dissimilar to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Like it's a, it's a ladder straight over the side and then straight up. Um, so what they're looking for is, is a vessel with a low freeboard, so a, a deck that's very close to the water mm-hmm. so that, that that is easy to do. Um, and they're looking for something without sort of any kind of countermeasures. If there are things like barbed wire running around the outside of the ship, I've not seen it, but I have heard what they'll do is they'll take a grappling hook, chuck it onto the barbed wire, uh, attach the grappling hook to a bucket, put the bucket in the water, and then the barbed wire gets pulled back as the ship tries to drag the bucket. Now, again, like that's incredibly simple, mm-hmm. very, very innovative. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that does is create enough of a gap for them to get up underneath. Mm. And these guys are obviously pretty thin and they're only carrying a rifle. Um, once they're on board, uh, they're, going for, they're going for the bridge. The bridge is the control center of the ship. They're going to try and get in there um, and they are going to... Um, ultimately use violence and aggression to sort of take the thing over. They then take it into Somali territorial waters. They stick it in an anchorage. They contact the ship owner and they start ransoming. And that's basically how it works. Um, the only real way or the way in which you combat it is really with guys on, on board with guns. They won't, again, this is a business model. They're not fanatics. So they will, they won't, uh, they won't go after ships that have people on board with weapons who are protecting them, mm. um, and particularly sort of high freeboard. There's a whole kind of risk criteria um, that, that you know that you can sort of look at. Um, I mean, once the ship's alongside, you know, those crew are in pretty pretty dire straits because now they're looking at. We're not talking weeks here. We're normally talking months of negotiations to get the price down, um, and then the sort of the, the payment of the ransom, and that's generally what's done. Um, I think is largely a money drop in cash. Um, and that's it. They got off, take their money with them, go back to shore, ship goes on its way. Wow. So what, tell us about the particular incident that you had where you recaptured a, a vessel. So um, the ship in question was a vessel called the MV Monte Cristo. Uh, it's a 55,000 55, ton container ship, so pretty big container ship, um, had pirates on board uh, and an unarmed security team. And what this unarmed security team did was effectively get everyone into the engine room, lock it down. You can you can control the ship from the engine room, um, largely. So that was kind of the, the, the sort of the thing to do. Lock everyone in there uh, and then and just sort of keep everyone safe. Now, if the crew are isolated from the pirates it's actually a relatively simple boarding because you don't have hostages mixed in with pirates. Shoot, shoot anyone that isn't in the engine room fundamentally you can get on board and if it goes a bit kinetic and rounds start going down you haven't got that added risk so there are various sort of categories of a, of a boarding and a level four is a hostage rescue which is part you know pirates are on board they're in amongst the crew that is a very difficult situation to to sort of deal with that's you know remit of special forces we used to be able to deal with the level three which is the crew are locked in the safe room there are no other crew it's only pirates on board we would go on with the sort of black roll kit you know fully uh 
black overalls, you know, dark sunglasses, helmets, body armor. Badass. And, say ba- bro- yeah, right, say badass. it was badass. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. It was the best job I had. It was. It was, it was just brilliant. Um, did you listen to ACDC pumping out the speakers on the way there? Is that, is that a didn't. thing that you can do? I've, I feel I've, I've missed something there. I yeah. feel that, yeah, listening listen to some of that would have been, would have been pretty special. Some Brian Johnson um, pounding down on the, these Somali pirates and they're thinking, shit, Brian's here. I mean, they, they were, because of the, like, because, I mean, Marines are fairly big physical, physical guys covered in this kit with all this body armor. The guys look physically imposing. And there was a, there was a logic to that because it's a little bit of sort of almost like, you know, dog psychology. You know, if a guy, if you come across a guy who's sort of six foot five and, and built like a brick shit house in a pub, you're unlikely to start on him if, if something goes down. So it's that same sort of thing. You want to appear physically imposing. We were respectful, but very, very firm. You know, we would grip them. We would control them. Um, we would uh, put plastic cuffs on them as quickly as possible. They were not we never we never hurt any of them but we were we were sort of firm as you'd expect a police officer in the uk to be mm-hmm. dealing with someone that's potentially dangerous it's firm it's not um it's not aggressive you're not trying to hurt them mm-hmm. um so so yeah uh we um we recaptured the vessel released the crew um i remember going down into the engine room and it was probably the only time in my career there was a real tangible sense of we've delivered some real value for people because they were overwhelmed with emotion. They were crying. They were cheering. You didn't get that in Afghanistan very often, um, ever. Uh, there was this sort of overwhelming sense of, you know, gratitude and thanks. Um, we then, because it was an Italian flagged vessels, the Italian, uh, government wanted to prosecute them. I think one of the first, successful prosecutions for piracy in, in God knows how many years. Wow. Um, uh, they got carted off to, uh, they got carted off to Rome. Uh, I went there and acted as a witness of the, for the prosecution, which was fascinating. Um, going into sort of one of these mafia style, you know, courtrooms with all the sort of, you know, uh, uh, rooms alongside where they could put all the sort of, you know, large numbers of mob bosses. And I'm there, <laughs> there's a sort of few pirates in there. Um, what I noticed, interestingly, again, it comes back to, you know, beware of your incentives. All of them had put on weight. So I was like, hang on a sec, we're going to, we're going to send them to prison in Italy. And that's probably a better outcome for them yeah. than, than being left in Somalia. You're going to eat better, nicer climate, more human rights, you know, wow. and, and I, don't get me wrong. I'm like, I'm, I'm totally comfortable and all fine with that. But I'm like, how's this a disincentive mm. to that kind of behavior when, you know, capture ends up in this um yeah, so yeah get the boat couple of million quid don't get the moat like holiday to rome yeah prison prison in rome do you know how much three, time, three meals a day do you know how much time they got I, I think it was sort of between 15 and 18 years sort of in the That's sort of serious in, in, serious in that kind of yeah i mean it, it was yeah they're not messing about um but then i don't know what happens i don't know what happens after that um so do they get sent back you know that creates kind of another question and this is part of the issue is that you know that the you know the government nato euro you know europe we, we sort of want to do something about that but we're not kind of totally sure on how to solve that problem mm-hmm. ultimately it's been solved by 
the market for private security, I believe. You know, enough guys on ships with guns. Sooner or later, these guys basically like, look, we can't get on to anything. Um, and I think it's much quieter than, well, it certainly is much quieter, just the number of attacks, the number of pirated ships. Um, I'm a little bit out of the loop with all of that stuff now, mm. but um, but certainly it's much quieter than it has been before. Was it a bit of a golden era or a hot, at least a hot era when sort of 2010-ish and before then? Yeah, completely. Um, it was... Yeah, the number of the number of piratings, the number of attacks was escalating rapidly. Um, this was something that people didn't really know, you know, how to how to deal with it. You know, the carriage of weapons. It's the, life at sea is a lot of kind of grey areas. So, you know, let's say you board you board some security guys in India with some rifles, and they get off in Djibouti, which is your kind of high risk area. Mm. Like, are there any implications around gun running then? Because they're getting oh, on with rifles again. Shit, yeah. So it becomes all... And I know that there have been people who've been really sort of caught out with this. Um, I believe, actually, rather unfortunately, there are still some British servicemen serving time in Mumbai when it all of that kind of stuff went sort of south very quickly. Um, and And again, it's, you know... It's, it's ungoverned space. You can't go out to those kind of places and, and sort of handle weapons and assume that it's kind of all okay. Because mm. um, it's, again, it's a, it's a dangerous and a, and a deeply, you know, complex and nuanced world out there. You, know, you don't really know what's going on in those places. Did so I was never tempted by the maritime security world. Right, yeah. It just strikes me how different some areas of the world are. I know this sounds stupid, like obviously obviously a lot of areas of the world are different, but when you say it like that, when you say that, you know, these the values that some people are living by and essentially the time that some civilizations are living in, some mm. some areas of the world are living in is so drastically different from ours. Oh, completely. And, uh, you know, again, it's it's... It's just that's I, I I hugely value travel. I hugely value any kind of experience that takes you out of the ones that you are familiar with because you can. It will change the way you think and see the world. It'll change the way you interact with people. Um, it'll change it'll change everything that everything about how you how you think about human behavior, and that's a massively valuable lesson. Mm. So you finished catching pirates <laughs> and decided that you were going to go into the world of business and leadership yeah so i i got some really good advice when i left which was you know don't don't go and do something similar to what you've done before you know really push yourself and go to a sort of different environment so i went into uranium enrichment for a couple of years um i worked for a company called urenco based up in uh cheshire Really interesting environment, you know. I, I did a, I did a degree in ancient history, so I'm going to work in the nuclear industry. Mm, you know, no real concept of that. Um, uh, very safety critical culture. Um, the words nuclear and accident don't go well together, um, and it's unacceptable to take any form of sort of personal risk in order to get the job done. Whereas, you know, my health and safety was a helmet and body armor and plenty of ammunition. Going into that world, that required a complete uh, mindset change for me. Um, but what I fundamentally realized was that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're leading a team of Marines, uh, leading a sports team, 
leading a business or leading a group of uranium enrichment technicians. Ultimately, team performance is dependent on leadership, culture, behaviors. The context really, I think people overstate the value of having had to work in the industry that they're in. Um, it's relatively easy to understand that. I think it's more under, more important to be able to sort of understand people. So I sort of became interested in, in effectively in leadership, um, in taking the skills that I learned in the military and sort of coaching leaders and helping them to sort of improve the performance of their people. Because fundamentally, that's what I enjoyed most about being in the Marines, uh, helping others to get better. I got a real sort of kick out of that. So if you could take some of the values that were common in the armed forces and import them into the business world or some of the elements, what would be some of the things that you would take across? Would you have iron shirts and shiny shoes? <laughs> um, I would take the standards. I wouldn't necessarily have the... The dress code. Yeah. But the sta- standards are a really interesting one because I think, you know, what, you, what you're willing to accept um, in terms of standards of performance, standards of behavior... Uh, is really important because that sort of sets the tone for your organization. Um, I've already talked about the accountability. I'd absolutely take that. That would be invaluable in any organization because you'd be able to just get so much more done. Um, I think the key thing that I would take is the sort of leadership view that you are there to improve the performance of your people. I think so often in organizations, people get promoted to a leadership position because they're good at doing stuff. And what that does is it reinforces the mindset of the doer. And actually, what I try and work with people to change is that look, you're, it's not about you doing things now. It's about that group over there. It's about spending time improving the performance of the team. You have been promoted because you're good at playing the instrument, but now you've got to conduct the orchestra to stop playing the instrument. It's a totally different way of thinking. Um, and I think organizations generally don't do a very good job of it. They sort of promote people and then kind of expect them to sort of get on with it. Um, And that's the sort of problem or that's the issue that I hope to address in some small way, really because if I work with someone relatively early in their career and I make them like 5% better at leading people, that has an impact not just on their current team, but all the people that they work with for the rest of their life. And that is in some small way going to contribute towards making the world a better place and that's why i do it i I think you're right i recently spoke to benjamin dennehy who is the uk's most hated sales trainer and (laughs) he was talking about um when he goes into sales companies and a lot of the time they will have a good salesman really they know top performer they think right it's time to move this person up they give him a promotion they make him a team leader and they lose a good salesman and gain a shit manager yeah. Um, and yeah, it's that going from doer to enabler. Yeah. I, and I think that's hundred. I see that sales classic, absolutely classic. And the organization, often people, yeah, sometimes people have said to me, do you know what? I was much happier when I was just doing the selling. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's, that's okay. You need to, I think not everyone, management isn't right for everyone. Leadership isn't necessarily right for everyone. I think you kind of have to ask the individual, look, do you, do you want to just, do you want a pay rise or do you want a team? Mm. Um, yeah, okay because you can negotiate, no. you can negotiate yourself out and just say, look, I just think I want more money. Like I, yeah. I'm, I'm the best seller on the floor, the best seller on the team, the best whatever. Like, yeah. And 
there is there's a because we are our jobs now so yeah. much there is this desire for natural progression this sense that if you're not moving up within the organization um but unfortunately i think a lot of the skills that make someone a good member of staff don't necessarily translate up to being a good manager but one of the difficulties that i see and a lot of the listeners might be able to see this within their own organizations as well is that respect tends to be emergent not dictated within an organization so if you just import some manager who's never worked in fucking uranium before and he's got some classical history degree and was just shooting pirates a couple of years ago like why should i listen to this schmo like talking mm. about you know he doesn't he's he's not been at the coal face he's not yeah. you know earned his keep he's not done this that and the other and you the the problems that a good leader and a good manager within an organization has to get past like these sort of invisible hurdles or steps that you need to climb it's like you need to be able to get the respect of people sometimes without having earned it by coming up through the system then you need to actually have good leadership skills then you yeah. need to be able to get them to listen to you then direction accountability da, 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 da. like it's challenging like it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that we have dysfunction within organizations yeah and i, I think it's it's a, it's a real shame it's a real waste of potential, potential for those individuals in those jobs, potential for those people in those leadership positions. You know, most people, and I, I haven't got the sort of statistics to hand, but, you know, that it's well known that most people don't like what they do for a living. Mm -hmm. 85, 85% of people are either um, nonplussed or actively disengaged with their job. It's only 15% of people, this is US data, 15% of people who are actively engaged with the profession that they have. I mean, fuck, that's a waste of potential. Like, you know, that is, that is a real waste. And there's no other word for it. You know, and I think, I think one of the things that, you know, I'd, I've realized about myself is I, I don't like inefficiency. I don't like waste. I was really startled by your, you know, your observation of, you know, you, hang on a sec, you take 50% of what's useful out of the chicken and you just chuck away the rest, you know? <laughs> when I think about it from an efficiency point of view, I'm like, fuck, that's awful. <laughs> you know, it, it, it drives me mad because um, that's something that could benefit someone else. So it's just that that inefficiency is a real shame. And if, I, th I think that's kind of one of the reasons I sort of went out on my own, decided to sort of start this was because there's so much of it and it's so often you know, the solution is offered by someone that, that believes that leadership can be summarized in three, you know, acronyms, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, it's about being, you know, responsible or courageous and accountable. And I'm just like, no, because if you're telling me it's all about empowerment, I will find a context of where it doesn't work. So for example, if you were to say to me, look, Rod, leadership is fundamentally all about empowerment. I'd say, yeah, 90% of the time, I agree with you. That's true. But if you and me were crossing the road together and we saw someone in front of us get hit by a car and had their legs taken off, the last thing you want me to do is turn around to you and go, Chris, do you want to call an ambulance now? Do you think that's the right thing to do? It's totally inappropriate, <laughs> right? It's a totally inappropriate way of behaving. And mm. I think that, you know, fundamentally, that's what, that's what leadership is. It's all about behavior. You don't get to decide whether you're a good leader or not. Other people do. That's one of the paradoxes of it. And it requires good judgment. It requires, you know, a clear sense of who you are, what you're good at, what you're not good at. It's a very 
broad subject and I, you know, I don't pretend to, I don't pretend to be an expert. You know, I hate it when people say, oh, you're a leadership. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm learning more about it. But if I, if I assume that I'm an expert, if I assume I'm elite in anything like that, it creates the conditions for complacency and I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You gotta have that learner's mind, I think, with things like this. And it would appear that you're importing some effective strategies, right? Some, you know, yeah. structures and processes from your past life, life lives, um, <laughs> that are, that are, are, are really going to be beneficial. But on the flip side of that, like, again, nuance, subtlety, individual situa- situations that we come up against, all that sort of stuff. Um, you said earlier on about how, when you were in the armed forces, you would never have to kind of like pull rank on someone or use your title. It's like, because I'm your commanding officer. Like if you have to yeah. say that because I'm your commanding officer line, it's like yeah. you, you've kind of lost. But how many times do you have this almost parent and child situation that I've seen in within organizations and businesses uh, and even been a part of it myself, right? It's like, mate, because I'm telling you to. Like, yeah. and I don't want to have to pull that pin. I don't want to have to use the that that line, but you know, ineffective leadership, misaligned values, someone mm. being in a a position that they don't want. And for anyone who's listening, you know, who might be in a managerial position and thinking, "Well, fucking hell!" Like I've got to I've got to pull that pin all the time. I need to, you know, like crank the handle really hard on all of my staff to get them to go. You know, from a compassionate side. We've just given you the statistic that 85% of people are either essentially nonplussed or actively disengaged with their jobs. 85% of the people that you are trying to manage, potentially 100%, because I don't know how that skews, the yeah. top nine, the top 15 might actually be all people in like top end positions or whatever. Um, <clears throat> all the people that you're speaking to, a big majority of them don't give a shit. But like they actually, actually genuinely do not give a shit about what it is that you're telling them. And you're trying to get into work every single day and try and make this more efficient. And da, 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 da. Oh, I must be a terrible manager. I must really be a really bad leader. I just can't get the team to listen to me. I can't get them to buy into what I'm doing. You know, I try and give them the processes and give them the structures and give them the support. And then it just, I get nothing back. Yeah. It's, it's astonishingly common. And it's, again, it's really sad. I mean, you ask people like, you ask people and they say, you know, how well do you know your people? How well do you know your team? And they're like, yeah, I know them reasonably well. Like, okay. Do you know where they were born? Do you know where they grew up? Do you know what school they went to? Do you know where they went to university? What did they study? What do they do on their weekends? What do they do with their disposable income? Have they got children? What are their names? How old are they? Mm. No. Right. Well, then you don't know your people. Mm. And if you don't know them, you can't pull those levers in order to manage them and sort of stoke the fires of their ambition or their drive. But equally, if you don't know them, the unwritten message or the underlying message is that you don't give a shit about them. That's what they think. That's what they feel. Now, they may never, ever tell you that, but that's the reality of it. Mm. So, you know, it's a really easy, you know, talk about practical takeaways, you know, sit down with your team and, and say, look, I just want to get to know you. So this might sound a bit invasive. Don't ask, don't answer anything you're not comfortable with. But, you know, those kind of questions. And if you say that your team is too big because you've got eight or 10 people, I did it with 30 people every single time. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't do that, the unwritten message is you don't give a fuck about them. Mm -hmm. And it would be really important, like, you know, speaking to a Marine, do you want to be the next regimental sergeant major? Or do you want to do four years, 
get a skill, get a trade, and then punch out? The answer's fine. Either one is fine. Mm-hmm. But help me so that I can help you in managing your career and, and using work that comes across my desk to help you move in that direction. So it's sort of a really simple example. We'd have to do troop circuits. I want to be a PTI. That's what I want to be in the Royal Marines. Okay, you're going to start running a couple of circuits a week. And I'm going to give you feedback on them. And then at the end of the year, I can write you up and say, you understand the principles of exercise. Um, you've added some really inventive stuff to this. Hasn't just been the sort of, you know, usual kind of circuit. Um, they've been fun. They've been interactive. Um, I can set you off on that course. I can't do that unless I know what that individual wants to do. Mm. So I'm really surprised that when people don't know that stuff. It's interesting that friendships are often built around vulnerability. Uh, I tend to say that the best friendships that you have are the ones where you or the other person can tell each other something that in the wrong hands would be catastrophic to the way that other people see you. And that you bond around something which actually isn't necessarily to do with friendship. It's kind of like outside of that realm of friendship. And when it comes to leadership and managing people, a lot of the time you don't bond and the deepest connections that you have don't come to do with anything to do with work because work just gets you through the door. It's like if you don't turn up on time and do the job that you're paid for, you're sacked. Like you fuck off. Like that, that is what gets you a seat at the table. What actually starts putting food on the plate is to do with, well, you know, why what, you, you like going to the gym. I like going to the gym. Why don't we do that? Hey man, like I brought you a coffee in this morning. Hey man, did you watch, you, uh, don't fuck with cats on Netflix or like, do you know what I mean? Like that, yeah. that's what, and I say a lot of the time to the guys, so I run a, a nightclub business. We have 400 staff that work for us. I have, eight to 14 managers who are young guys and girls, you know, between the age of 19 and 22, 23. And they have a team of 30 to 60 people below them who've never worked for anyone before. They've just been let go by mummy and daddy. They party a lot and we're trying to fill nightclubs. That's what we're doing. It is the most chaotic environment for a leader to try and come into. And these guys haven't led shit. They've, they've literally just got let go by their mum and their dad. Maybe, I'm about to bring on this is going to go out after I promote them so it doesn't really matter. I'm going to bring on four I'm going to bring on four new guys this week. I'm sitting down with them in 2 days time and these kids came to university. One of the lads uh, is from America. He can't even drink back home and I'm going to ask him to start recruiting and managing a team. But one of the first things that I tell the guys to do is like look, if you want to get your team to buy into you as a person, and to do the thing that they that you want them to do, bond about anything that isn't to do with work. As soon as you start talking to them about, even if it's just what's your favorite drink, things that are analogous to work, it's like, oh, well, that's cool. Like, yeah. you, why don't we go out for a drink? Then you can roll that into going out to one of our events. You know, that's on the side of things. Let's say that you're doing a fitness business, or you, why don't we go to the gym? Let's say that you're doing, you're in filmmaking, or, you know, like day trip, whatever it might be. Like taking an interest in someone in everything that isn't work yep. pays disproportionate dividends because they categorize anything that is to do with work. They immediately lump it under like one type of communication. It's like, oh, it might mm-hmm. as well, might, even if it was a WhatsApp message, it might as well be fucking email. Like, but as soon as you shift it out of that and you think, well, this person actually cares about me, that's where, and that's that analogy between sort of that and vulnerability. It's like 
friendship actually gets built around something which has got fuck all to do with friendship. And mm. a lot of the good relationships that I've had, best relationships I've had with my staff that have worked for me over the years, have had absolutely nothing to do with what we've achieved at work. The achievements mm. at work have come of a byproduct of the things that we've done outside of it. It is a it is a difficult line to get that right. So the way I've kind of thought about it is you very early leading a group of people have to work out the difference between being friendly and friends. Mm. Because if they become your friend and your best mate, where you're going out together and you're, you know, chatting up girls and going out on the piss together, doing whatever young people do these days, um, the next day, like they don't turn up to work. You need to have a performance management conversation with that individual. You need to be able to say, look, that's unacceptable. And I think that, knowing the boundary i think you only know the boundary once you've kind of got it wrong or once you've overstepped it with someone mm. and you've become friends with someone and you're like yeah pff, do you know what that was a really difficult person to have performance management conversations with and maybe they exploited our friendship a little bit to kind of get away with some poor performance that's a that's a tough one um when you pull that pin as well when you do the mate we need to have a chat when you do that it you watch the walls of the friendship fall down as well because sometimes people might have thought, I thought I was getting special dispensation here. I thought that we were mates. And you're like, it doesn't stop the fact that we're not mates. It's not to do with the fact that I'm not friendly, but you you are right. The the waters get very yeah. muddied very fast. Um, yeah. And in a business that's maybe a little bit more bureaucratic than the one like ours, our, the world of club promo literally is the Wild West. Um mm. Uh, yeah, in a more typical business organization, people need to, they need to draw some incredibly bright lines about what is and is not sort of acceptable friend behavior as well, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something that is probably slightly more unique to your industry, but each industry kind of has its own sort of lines on sort of what's acceptable. I think provided when you're all within your organization, your leadership is clear on what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and then they all live in line entirely with what is acceptable all the time. That's fine. It doesn't matter where you draw the line. Mm. Um, what matters is that there is a line. Everyone is clear on what that line is, um, and there are consequences when you step either side of it. So I could be, I, you know, as a sort of young troop commander in the Marines, I could get as hammered as I want. I could be up till sort of five o'clock in the morning, you know, in in the center of Taunton, uh, which is where I was based, um, doing whatever I wanted to do. But at 8.30, I needed to be clean-shaven, showered, and in front of my guys, ready to do troop fizz. Now, if I was absolutely suffering, and as we went for a run, I, you know, I was sick. Obviously, you don't want to be doing that every day. Weirdly, I would earn sort of probably an element of respect for doing that. Mm. But if you'd slept in, your company commander would come and kick your door down. <laughs> like this is, you would get that. You'd find that consequence real fast. Mm-hmm. That was totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like, it's one of those, that's that part of the way, part of the culture for what that organization was. That worked really well there. Might not work well everywhere else, but it doesn't really matter. Everyone was clear on the expectation and the standard. Got you. Rod, man, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much. No, I've really enjoyed it too. Great, great conversation. So Leadership Forces, where where can people go to find out more? Yeah, so um, leadershipforces.com is my website. Uh, as with all websites, as with me, it's a work in progress. Um, uh, I do most of my sort of thinking on written form on there. 
Um, but I'm an open connector on LinkedIn. So don't bother personalizing the message. Um, it'd be nice if you said you listened to this podcast because then I'd know where it came from. But just hit me a uh, hit me up with a sort of connection request. I'll always accept um, and always willing to have a chat with people who think maybe I can help them out, whether that's people from a commercial perspective, but equally anyone that is looking to resettle out of the military. I know how difficult that journey is, um, and I'll always give people the time. It might not be this week. It might not be next week, but I'll always make time for a phone call for anyone that wants it. Rod, awesome, man. Thank you very much. You know what to do, ladies and gentlemen. Like, share, and subscribe. Links to what we've talked about today will be in the show notes below. But for now, thanks for your time, man. Thank you. Thank you.